Hi, everyone. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert, and uh, once again, welcome. I'm thrilled to discuss uh, the topic of drugs in Iran today uh, with Dr. Maziar Ghiabi. Maziar is an Italian-Iranian. He works in history, ethnography, and social science. He's a lecturer at the University of Oxford and a titular lecturer at Wadham College. Prior to this position, he was a postdoc fellow at the Paris School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences. And then before that, he was a PhD student at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Now let's see, he's the editor of Power and Illicit Drugs in the Global South, published by Rutledge in 2018. And he's an editorial board member for the Social History of Alcohol and Drugs Journal, which is with the University of Chicago Press. His most recent book is Drug Politics, Managing Disorder in the Islamic Republic of Iran, published by Cambridge in 2019. Maziar, wow, it's um, wonderful to have you here, and I'm thrilled to talk to you today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I think we should probably start off with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, maybe something about how you first grew interested in studying drugs? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's been a long journey, I mean, over the last 15 years since I started my, my university path. I mean, uh, drugs came in sort of in this picture just uh, just a few, like I would say five, six, seven years ago. Uh, okay. Before before that, I, I you know I moved between many departments. I started studying languages, Arabic, Urdu, and and Persian uh, in Venice at the University of Kafoskari, and I was more interested in you know sort of just to make sense of you know a part of the world that you know in a way belonged to my to my sort of uh, family and my family sort of uh, cultural background, but at the same time was so important following 9-11. And, uh, and then I moved to Oxford uh, in 2011 and I started studying, you know, more, more closely the issues of drugs. And then and so I got interested into that and I had the chance also to sort of move between different aspects connected to drugs in the Middle East, from politics to, to history and anthropology. Uh, so I got to ask, I mean, one thing that jumped out at me, uh, I mean, how many languages are you um, familiar or fluent in? Well, <laughs> this question comes up uh, quite often when I, you know, <laughs> when I kind of <laughs> ask, well, I, so I always say that, you know, I, I studied languages uh, when I went to university, so uh, it's a few of them. But uh, the ones I work with mostly in the Middle East, I, I, it's Persian, Arabic, uh, well, Italian, which is my sort of mother tongue, English and French. And, uh, and uh, because of, you know, sort of contamination of friends and people I hang out with, Spanish. <laughs> Boy, that's not really nearly enough, is it? I mean, you you really need to get working on that one. I mean, yeah, well, my Chinese, I think. I need, I need to go into Chinese now. <laughs> I mean, I'm personally still working on English. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got a hold of your book and um, I picked it up and I was very, I mean, impressed right off the bat. And I, I just got the sense that you were um, you're pioneering something here, that you're breaking new ground. 
uh, and really that not many people have explored uh, drugs in Iran in 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 much depth. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but um, can you, I suppose, explain why researchers and writers maybe haven't embarked on this subject? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I mean, if you think about the Middle East, not only Iran, you know, you we have this feeling, and it's quite evident that most studies and commentaries about the Middle East and, and generally the Islamic world are sort of obsessed about religion or Islam in particular, or if not religion and Islam, and then it's authoritarianism of conflict or other issues related to this kind of stuff. Uh, so, so I wanted, you know, my first objective was really to sort of uh, find a new approach to study life and politics in, in this part of the world, which is so close, so influential to us, uh, and at the same time seems so distant, so exceptional. Uh, so one of the reasons why I think most most of the scholarly debate and sort of scholarly research has avoided working on drugs is because funding and sort of general academic and, and the professional interest is, is focused on security and security-oriented approaches within the Middle East and, and in particular in Iran. Mm. So Iranian studies is, you know, it's a field where foreign policy is, is a huge uh, is a huge field. Uh, or the study of the so-called regime, so the Islamic Republic in Iran. And, uh, and of course, because of the funding system in these two, uh, two research fields, uh, of course, there is less interest in humanistic approaches or critical approaches for that matter. Oh. Um, so, yeah, and of course, I should add also that, you know, a second point is access to the country, and this is not a minor thing. You know, Iran has been quite difficult for especially Western researchers uh, to access. And if you think about drugs as a sort of very sensitive topic, then that makes it even harder. And it is a sensitive topic. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it you, is. You, uh, you, you wrote at the, at the beginning of your book um, that uh, you were warned. Um, you were warned of the potential risks of doing some research on Iran in Iran. And that really struck me. Yeah. Uh, you know, like before, before uh, going to Iran, it, it took me quite a long time to basically, first of all, get the approval by my department, you know, to, to access the field. And that's a problem. I think many of us who work on foreign countries and the topic like drugs and you know, have experienced. But the, the warning came also from my courts and my family and my sort of network, you know, that had a sort of uh, a personal connection to me. And, they, you know, they always warned me, you know, why are you doing this? This is so dangerous. And at the same time, I had the feeling that actually, to some extent, we needed to demystify, you know, the, 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 the sort of idea that the research cannot be done. And, uh, I mean, by certain sort of... Uh, tactics if you want i i kind of you know managed to do it if you want i can expand on the tactics <laughs> yeah sure if you if you think it's worthwhile i you know like one of the things you know to, to that i wanted to 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 basically put in place before going to Iran was to have an institutional support and uh, because the UN office of drugs and crime the UNODC has been working in Iran for many years and has had a positive constructive relationship with the authorities there 
I, I, I had an internship before starting my research and I had you know the chance to, to, to see how how it felt to do research in Iran and how the, how local authorities as well as you know general population would react to to research questions and and I saw that actually there was a lot of openness and willingness to collaborate and that the drug issue wasn't really a taboo mm. Mm. Uh, for listeners we're discussing drug politics managing disorder in the Islamic Republic of Iran and maybe for some uh, Americans or Europeans um, they might think well why why does this matter to me Maybe um, the opioid crisis um, in Pennsylvania matters a lot more, or maybe cannabis in California is something that they want to read about. So I guess, uh, Maziar, one question that occurred to me is, um, you know, what does your book suggest about, um, or let me rephrase, how can you explain the importance of your book um, and managing drugs in Iran for people outside of the country. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, to a certain thing, I can agree with the audience that that asked that question. But it always depends on our readiness, you know, to to hear other stories on how much you know we are open to welcome new approaches. I mean, new narratives. I mean. You know, for instance, if you think about Clifford Geertz, you know, talking about Balinese cockfight and indigenous religions, uh, that hadn't much to do with, you know, how we see North America and the European societies. But actually, that, that article by Clifford Geertz taught us a lot about how we should see ourselves in the world. And in a way, I mean... I'm not saying that, you know, my, my, my contribution is as great as, you know, one of the greatest sociologists, but... Mm. The Western audience uh, will find, I think, the topic interesting, at least for several reasons. I mean, the first one is that we talk a lot about Iran. And, ever, you know, it, Iran is on the news all the time. It's been mm -hmm. on the news in North America, particularly for the last 40 years since the Islamic Revolution. It is a threat. It is a mystery. I mean, it's a country that is seen all, as a powerful actor in the Middle East, but also very backward. Sometimes it's defined as, you know, governed by crazy mullahs. And yet, you know, uh, it is it has been a laboratory, a major one for modern politics in the region and in the Islamic world uh, more in general. You know, it has witnessed the greatest revolution of our contemporary era of the last 50 years and the last great revolution, if you want. You know, uh, so that we haven't had any other revolution after the Iranian revolution. Uh, and it's also a major Islamic country. If we want to come to and to understand better the relationship that our societies have with Islam, for instance, and you know, Muslim majority countries, I think Iran would be an interesting case to look at, and uh, to look at how religion and politics come to terms, and uh, and shape you know the life of people, but also how what we have described as a theocracy, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic has been able actually to implement some very counterintuitive, to some extent even progressive hmm. models of management of the drug issue. You know, you spoke about, the, you mentioned the opioid epidemics, and that's something that Iran has been able to kind of control and to sort of reduce the harm of it over the last two decades. And, and I think that's something quite interesting. Me too.
Can you say a bit more about how Iran has managed to control some of the opioids? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, follow, you know, Iran uh, in in 79 when there was the revolution, basically Iran uh, started the, well, there was a war with Iraq and that lasted 8 years. Uh, eight years and the, the disruption that this caused uh, increased. You know the, the the sort of number of uh, opioid users in the in the years after the end of the war. So we are talking about the nineties and early two thousands. In, in this period, uh, th- there was a massive opioid epidemic, especially in, in heroin epidemic in particular, mm-hmm. but also morphine, pharmaceutical morphine. Mm. Um, which was, of course, sold in the illegal market. It also increased the threat of uh, an HIV-AIDS epidemic that uh, in certain prisons of the country in the late 90s uh, included about 100% of contagion rate. Mm -hmm. So basically, this was so dangerous that could basically spill over to the general population. Uh, at that point, the Iranian government uh, decided to consider something that we thought at the time to be impossible in an Islamic so-called conservative country. It introduced large-scale nationwide you know, harm reduction programs, including, uh, of course, method of maintenance program, but even more controversial than that, needle distribution programs in okay. prison and outside. As well as you know, sort of prevention programs on sex education and 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 so on. Uh, that's something that you know in certain states within uh, within North America, it's still quite controversial. Absolutely. Uh, so and and today, you know, after many years, we we are talking about safe injection rooms in 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 Iran. There are debates about regulation of uh, of opium and cannabis. And so, in a way, you know, that might be a chance to learn a lesson from the enemy for the U.S. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I, I certainly felt reading the book was, you know, how nuanced and sometimes progressive um, uh, harm reduction strategies and drug policies were in Iran. Uh, so I suppose this is a bit of a follow-up um, the the story of drugs um i reckon has often been told through uh sort of through the 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 lens or uh if you will of the united states and perhaps more generally sort of western perspectives um and i i think that's slowly changing and um and shifting so can you say a bit, Maziar, about um, some of the, the the shifts that are taking place in how historians and, and other scholars are examining drug policy? Absolutely. I mean, and it's it's very much you know a follow up to to some of the comments on Iran, but generally, drug history and and drug studies are coming to terms and sort of acknowledging the importance of experiences that come from other regions of the world. So far, we have sort of looked at drugs history as as originating and developing in the United States. Well, uh, you know, drug historians over the last 10 years have have reshaped that, have reformulated that, are showing that the experiences from Latin America, but also from Africa and the Mm. Far East, uh, have actually been a formative, uh, fundamental experience in the development of uh, 
uh, of, of the current drug regime, but also that the experiences of uh, ordinary people across the world, and particularly in the global south, uh, it's, it's a telling tale for understanding, you know, how, how drugs have been used and have been part of, you know, people's lives, ritual, rituals, uh, ways of self, uh, self-treating, mm. the pursuit of pleasure, and also how countries in, in the global south, across the global south, really, have adopted, as I just described earlier, different policy styles, you know, in reacting to, to, to the so-called drug crisis. Um, in a way, you know, uh, the, the work of uh, drug historians and drug scholars in general are reclaiming, you know, uh, drug history uh, as, a, as a global field, not simply mm-hmm. as a field that concerns uh, the Western world and particularly North America. Uh, so, and I think this goes together with, you know, broader debates within the social sciences and humanities. I mean, we are trying to, in a way, decolonize drug history, decolonize our approach to theory uh, and, 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 and our analytical lens you know, in understanding the world. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. There's a lot to be learned. Mm-hmm. Can I invite you to speculate for a minute or two? I mean, why is it that, you know, thinking back, um, the scholarship took shape this way in the first place? Did it have to do with uh, the availability of sources and the availability of funding for Western-based um, researchers? And I, I guess I'm just trying to trying to grapple with you know how, how and why we're, it's only now in you know the last ten years that we're starting to to decolonize, as you say. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've asked this question several times. I asked myself this question several times. I mean, uh, I think on the one hand there is the dominance of English language. That mm. that has that's informed this. Of course, you know when scholarship is written in English, it concerns the English world. Uh, you know that actually discriminates even within uh, within the West. You know scholarship in French and Italian is often left aside mm. uh, in the major English sort of uh, English speaking scholarship. Uh, so that's that's a minor you know like element. But generally, of course, uh, if you compare funding. Uh, as you said, you know, between North American universities and the rest of the world in this field, uh, well, uh, you know, there is a discrepancy. It's a huge discrepancy, and uh, and uh, and uh, it is also true that the blame shouldn't shouldn't go only only you know on on, on scholars that have worked you know in 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 the, in the sort of North America and, and in Europe. It's also a fact that. These topics, such as you know, a sort of humanistic social science approaches to drugs, uh, have been neglected, you know, uh, in a, in the rest of the world because uh, scholarly pursuits have been more interested in big topics, such as you know, the big political history of events of wars, you know, the same considerations that we made uh, for for Iran and Middle Eastern studies. You know, very few scholars in in the region in the Middle East have an interest from a social science and sort of historical perspective in the subject of drugs. And of course that contributed to this topic uh, to be somehow neglected up to now. Mm. Uh, Perhaps more than that, 
I think there is also an intimate relationship in drug studies more than drug history between uh, the huge amount of uh, interest that drugs have had for U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. uh, globally as a tool to influence, you know, uh, security, security relations with countries around the world. Think about Latin America, for instance, or Afghanistan, um, and the evolution of, of drug studies. Uh, these two have been sort of in a symbiotic relationship for many decades. Mm. Um, so do you mind if we deep dive into your book now and sort of get into it a little bit? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, for the readers uh, or listeners uh, and readers for that matter, um, I just want to kind of briefly summarize some of the 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 fascinating contents. Um, the, the book is, is broken into, um, into two parts um, with an interregnum. Part one um, describes a genealogy of drug politics. Uh, it describes drugs, uh, revolution and war. And then it describes uh, reformism and drugs. Um, then you get into your interregnum and you discuss crisis as an institution. After that, you uh, in part two, you move into um, the anthropological mutation of methamphetamines, which is fascinating, and then the art of managing disorder and um, drugs and populism. Uh, and it's look, I'll just say I think it's elegantly constructed and 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 very very well written. But my question is. Um, it's also deeply interdisciplinary, right? It blended all sorts of sources. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about sort of that, that tough balancing act? And, and um, then maybe after that, I can ask you about the writing process itself. Of course, yeah. Well, in a way, you know, as I said, I, I come from an extremely multidisciplinary background. I moved between departments of, you know, so-called Oriental studies to... To, his, to global history, to politics, to international relations over the last 15 years. Mm. So the book is the product of, of, of also my journey uh, through different um, at, academic disciplines and academic departments. Uh, and also, it's not only the product of my journey, but also of my sort of conviction uh, of uh, how important uh, is transdisciplinarity in understanding ep- empirical problems, and you know the empirical problem in this case is is uh, is, is drugs as a phenomenon and also as a crisis. Mm. This is a crisis, of course, and I kind of explain in the book that is both invented and real. In a way, it's a crisis that been shout uh, that been described by politicians uh, for about a hundred years by also ordinary people who describe, you know, the issue of drugs in part due to the influence of media um, as as a, as an intractable crisis, as a threat to society. But it's also a crisis because, uh, in a way, certain uh, reverberations of, 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 of drug phenomena have been uh, changing deeply our societies. And that's why I, I was speaking and referred to the anthropological mutation of Methamphetamines. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know how to manage uh, interdisciplinarity, uh, so I, one of the first of all, I think you know I I have a high uh, 
sort of consideration of how important is history in understanding political change and political evolutions. And so I was very keen to develop a, a particular strand of historical research, which is genealogical research, inspired, of course, by Foucault, Giorgio Agamben, um, in trying to understand the origins of the modern system that Iran has been adopting vis-a-vis -vis drugs. So in my genealogical pursuit, I, I used archives from uh, different periods which could reveal so-called moments of change or moments of truth in, mm. in, in drug history and in drugs politics. Uh, these, these moments of truth were, of course, uh, those periods where the drug phenomenon was most critical, you know, for for. for state formation, for the way politics interacted with it, but also in terms of people's consumption. Mm. Uh, but my main concern in the book is to deliver a political ethnography of the drug phenomenon. And, uh, and I do so by engaging, you know, in sort of long-term ethnographic uh, immersion in the field, uh, trying to sort of follow, up, follow the phenomenon of drugs uh, in, in the different uh, political environments where it is managed and discussed. Uh, this, of course, includes, you know, sort of state-led conferences, state-led uh, clinics for methadone distribution, uh, but also the sort of work of NGOs and civil societies in treating addiction and treating uh, rehabilitation. So this had no ethnographic approach, in my view, was the best way, or at least the way that I conceived as most productive, uh, to demystify the idea of Iran as a sort of inherently backward state vis-a-vis -vis drugs, and also to demystify drugs policy uh, in, that, in that context, and, and try to see how it changed and what were the determinant elements that changed it. I, I suppose then... How you know you're you're working on, um, you're working on this approach, and how how do you how do you write? I mean, how how do you blend the different um, disciplines? Uh, and sort of what can you say? What your maybe writing strategy or tactics were? <laughs> you asking you asking the secret in the machine. <laughs> The ghost in the machine. Well, I mean, uh, I have a quite uh, sort of uh, systematic writing uh, uh, strategy. I usually, you know, before starting any any writing and even thinking about uh, how I would like to frame a certain chapter, I, I I read and take notes of every primary material that I have, and uh, and I try to see what is the narrative within this primary material, and, and in doing so, I use archival material and my ethnographic field notes, uh, looking at them more or less as an equal uh, source of information. I see. Uh, so basically, I call it uh, my open air archive. It's, uh -huh. You know, uh, I look at it in, in, with the same eyes, sort of. Of course, I'm conscious that they are produced in different ways, uh, but I, I try to give value to my field notes as they were archival material. It's really so interesting. That, that they could be biased in a way as well. Of course, I'm, 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 I know that, they, you know, I could be biased on many, many instances or 
being complete as much as an archival material could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 then after taking these notes, as I, I start re- reflecting upon, you know, what is of course, you know, what is the main narrative and the main question I want to take. Uh, in, uh, you know, uh, depending on, uh, on, 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 you know, if it's an ethnography, of course, I'll try to, uh, to, f- to find the main narrative lines uh, that I want to highlight. And, and, and of course, uh, sustaining my, 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 my theory, my, my uh, interpretation of, of certain facts and, uh, and, and events. On the genealogical side or historical side, as you, as you know, I, I, I'm very keen in historical anthropology. Mm-hmm. So, so trying to kind of give to my historical narrative some uh, some uh, anthropological sensitivity. I, I, it's hard to define. It's easier when you read it than when you explain it. I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, thanks for sharing a little bit of that uh, secret formula. That's uh, that's great. Works. <laughs> uh, did you want to share? Um... Some of your favorite anecdotes from the book? Is there are there little bits that you know, you just you know, little jewels or gems that you thought were worth um, um, telling us about? Mm. Well, uh, th- there is one which I, which I which I found funny and actually in a way was quite revealing to myself. Uh, a good sort of litmus test for for myself when I was doing field work. Um, I was uh, I was in southern Tehran, uh, which is a very uh, sort of is the popular area of the capital, uh, quite working class, with a large number of uh, migrants living in the city. And I was uh, going to a rehab addiction re- recovery center managed by an NGO uh, in this part of uh, the city. And when I arrived, uh, you know, I just knocked at the door and sort of a social worker let me in. And, and I and I said, look, I would like to speak to the psychologist, you know, that manages this place. And um, I had an appointment, I told her. And uh, she said, OK, yes, yeah, just wait in the, you know, waiting room in the lounge and uh, she'll call you. And uh, so when she called me, I went in and she was quite, you know, stern and quite uh, unsympathetic initially and uh, quite tough on me. Uh, And I said, "Okay, well, I mean, and and she asked me, so how long have you been an addict? And I said, well, doctor, no, I I start, you know, I don't use, you know, substances, uh, especially when I'm in Iran, I told her. And I said, oh, sorry, who are you? And I gave me gave her my business card. Mm. Uh, and I said, look, we had an appointment. We, I, I want to interview you. And she just went. So she was so embarrassed. But in a way, actually, you know, it, it, I spent about 15 minutes talking to her. She didn't realize. And I, I said, OK, well, my ethnographic immersion is actually working quite well. So, you know, they're taking me, you know, for, for being, you know, sort of uh, this is working class drug users, which is quite an achievement, I would say. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good anecdote, but yep. I mean, it was. It, it leads me into. Uh, I mean, I think it's a good anecdote, but it leads me into a, uh, another. I, I think question about. Um, a, uh, who? I'm trying. I'm struggling for the right words to to frame it. It's um, you're clearly um, you're clearly you know touching on original subject matter and offering new perspectives about important current events whether or not it it happens to be 
drugs in Iran or, or in the United States or wherever else. But I mean, the audience, I guess I'm thinking about the audience and who is it that needs to, to devour your book? Is it that, is that woman that you just described or who is it that needs to read the book the most? Well, a good question. Uh, I hope everyone, every single person would, would read the book since the book is actually open access so everyone can access it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I would say that uh, first of all, I, I would I, I think it would be very, very informative at least, if not useful, for people and scholars particularly working on drug studies and drug history so that they can acknowledge the importance of the Iranian case and the Iranian uh, uh, the Iranian narrative to the making of global drug history. If you really aim at globalizing drug history, uh, I think the Iranian case must be taken into account. Uh, it's a it's a very important country in, in, in the modern history of drugs because it was a major opium producer and it also experimented with all sorts of policies with regards to uh, drug use and 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 and, um, and also on addiction policies and treatment. So, I think that would be that would be. I think you know I can confidently say it. At least it could be informative, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, to this readership. And secondly, I think for all those who have an interest in understanding the Middle East and North Africa or the Islamic world, uh, I think the book can help us relocate the analytical approaches that we have adopted towards this part of the world or this uh, as, you know, this civilization, if you want to use the unfortunate uh, words by Huntington, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it enables us to see, the, at least the case of Iran, on a sort of through a grounded approach, an approach that is very much concerned with the lived experience of policies, which is uh, which is which tries to demystify some of the ideas and concepts that we have been using in understanding uh, Iran and and the Muslim majority countries, and also it opens up you know new approaches, new venues for 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 studying you know the you know the the, the societies beyond the West mm. by by taking away you know exceptionalist lenses, you know, thinking that, you know, the Islamic world is an exception in the contemporary modernizing world. That's fascinating. Uh, I guess I just want to backtrack and highlight something for listeners. Um, so Maziar made the, the, made the statement that the book is open access. And so what that means for everyone listening is that uh, you can just uh, search uh, online drug politics managing disorder in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Just punch that into whatever search engine you use, and you'll be able to get a copy of the book um, and download it and and read it at your leisure. You don't have to pay anyone anything. Uh, so just wanted to make that abundantly clear to all the listeners. Uh, uh, so Mazi, I only have two more quick questions for you, if that's okay. Please go ahead. So I have to pick your brain about what other sorts of uh, research you're you're pursuing these days. Mm. Thanks. Well, uh, quite a lot actually, because you know after you work on a book for so many years, and I'm sure you know that uh, the the one thing you want to do is is to do something else. Uh, 
mm-hmm. but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's, it's not always possible. One of the things that I've been working on a lot is, uh, is uh, trying to sort of, uh, first of all, uh, find, uh, find sources on the very early days of modern prohibition in Iran. So the period concerning the late 19th century uh, to the 1920s. Uh, you know, overlapping with the Shanghai and the Hague uh, Opium Conferences. Okay. Uh, interestingly, you know, Iran was also one of the first signatories of these treaties and the first country to adopt, uh, the first opium producing country to adopt restriction on consumption. Um, and and wow. so, yeah, yeah. And these events, actually, these policies overlap with another revolution which was the constitutional revolution in Iran, the, the one that established the first parliament in 1906-1911. So I'm trying to look at this period uh, and, and, and from a social history, history from below approach. Um, yeah, that would be one of the lines of inquiry. And the others are more concerned with anthropological research of how uh, people cope with addiction and how they reframe mm-hmm. uh, what is addiction in modern times, you know, in contemporary times. Oh man, those those just sound so cool. <laughs> um, you're gonna have to let me know how they go. Honestly, we'll talk. Um, my 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 last question, though, man, is like, what is what's happening? What's next? Like, what kind of um, conferences are you preparing, or what kind of publications do you have coming out? What's what's happening? So the, the 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 conference that I'm attending actually in about a week is is I think it's fascinating. It it questions the dichotomy of drugs and medicine, and evil and good, and and so I'm going there trying to 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 sort of reflect also in philosophical terms on this dichotomy. Uh, but I you know my philosophical or if you want ontological reflection is mostly. Uh, grounded, of course, in an exp- a historical experience uh, concerning uh, the opium distribution program that Iran um, adopted in the 70s, you know, when the state provided opium to all registered users, basically the equivalent of um, medical cannabis, but for opium. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to ask what are, what is, so what are the philosophical implications, you know, for the drugs, medicine, the dichotomy of this program. So just let me get this straight before you move on to the next thing. In the 1970s, opium was distributed to all users in Iran. I just, I I think I heard that correctly. I think you heard that correctly. All registered users. Yeah, all registered users. Okay. And uh, so you, you, you would just register with your physician or, you know, in a pharmacy and for all those above 60 of uh, 60 years old they would have that immediately the physician could write them a sort of a, 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 they called it a voucher a coupon for opium and they would have uh, high quality iranian opium locally produced available and uh, and for all those below the age of 60 they needed some uh, medical justification. You know, they they would go to the physician and sort of talk to him and try to uh, say, you know, I suffer from back pain, I have a migraine, or, or, or I'm dependent on opioids. And they would receive another voucher for the period of six months renewable of premium opium from the pharmacist. This kind of, this is the kind of policy that, um, 
a lot of other countries could potentially learn from. Again, you see why the Iranian case might be very interesting for people around the world because yeah. it's been experimental over 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 the decades. And it's just off the charts interesting in itself. Um, yes, there are lessons to be learned, but it seems to what you're describing seems to complicate a lot of maybe preconceived notions around Iran. Yes, absolutely. You know, when you, uh, as someone who has been, you know, sort of struggling with, uh, with, with uh, Iran's place in the world, because of course, when you are half Iranian or Iranian, you know, the people always expect you to comment on, on the country, and uh, and when you listen to the media, the idea that you have about Iran is just like it's as a terrible place where you know no one can speak, nothing's going on, and everyone is repressed. Well, of course, you know, depression is, is, is part of the deal, I guess. But, it, you know, Iran society is very vibrant. There's lots of things going on culturally, you know, and policy-wise as well. So, uh, you know, I try, to, I try to give a little bit of contribution on that, on that question. Try to complexify a bit, you know, our ideas about, about Iran. Well, I just got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, for all the listeners out there, I can't recommend um, uh, Maziar's book enough. It's called Drug Politics, Managing Disorder in the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's, uh, as we've discussed here, um, deeply, deeply uh, interdisciplinary, as well as extremely well-written and accessible. And... Um, you know, thanks for your time, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you, Luke. Thanks. Absolutely. Pleasure to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thanks. Thanks.